It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, of the gangs, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Oh, this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a tranquil terminus in a terrifying world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800, wow, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a man on a mission, I kid you not, and that is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. Absolutely. And the hostess with the mostest. Together, we are the watchers on the wall. And we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident (laughs) with a scandalous squid? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't send us pictures of the great job you did doing brain surgery on your cousin. But (laughs) you might be glad you know a little bit about brains, maybe. Especially if you're a zombie. (laughs) Hey, que pasa, USA? Que pasa? We learn as much from you do... As we learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's so easy. Easy as cake. Piece of pie. Or is that easy as pie? Piece of cake. It could be easy as banana bread. Oh, since I made you banana yes, bread you did. the other day. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that. Here's <laughs> Nurse Amy to tell you how to connect with us. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com or find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a Facebook page or two. Facebook. Uh, seems like a lot. <laughs> I know. Doom and Bloom. And we also have one called Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You have a personal page, Joe Alton, MD. True that. 
which is a good good place to start because it'll lead you to all the other paths. <laughs> yes, friend me. Yeah, absolutely. Twitter, we're at Prepper Show, and our YouTube channel is Doctor Bones Nurse Amy. You can find our podcast here, and also we have one at American Survival Radio. Now, this is the medical podcast. The other one is current events. Aha. So watch out. We may actually have some opinions on that, <laughs> on current it's events. A, it's a little different. Um, let's see. We also have a video cast at AroundTheCabin.com. That is the first and third Wednesdays of every month. And, of course, you're listening to our blog talk show, and this one Generally gets put up on Saturdays, Sundays, occasionally Monday mornings if we're at a show. And you guys know who listen a lot that we travel at yes, least once do. a month <laughs> during the season. In fact, this weekend we're going to be in Springfield, Missouri. Yes, Springfield, Missouri. And that is an RK Prepper show. So if you want to check that out, you can find the link on our medical classes page and also at RK Prepper Shows has some information. If you want to sign up for our suture class, we are providing one of those. Right. Suture, staple, and wound care. Absolutely. And when not to do all those things and when just to leave it open. That will be at 930 on Sunday morning. And I believe that Sunday morning this weekend is the 25th at 930 a.m. So if you're in... I guess we're Central Time in yes, Springfield. Right. Okay. So that will be Central Time. So if you are in beautiful Springfield, Missouri, please come by and say hi at the RK Prepper Show. We'll be there all weekend having a great time with all sorts of awesome people. Hey, I wanted to make sure you knew that we have published our brand new spanking, (laughs) spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. It is almost 700. It is 700 pages, 699, I think. Uh, Now available on Amazon. It is all sorts of information in plain English, more stuff that you can shake a stick at, 150 different topics that you might encounter in times of trouble when medical help may not be on the way. So check that out and get yourself a, a, a fresh copy of that. Give your old book to someone you love and have this new one. It's got, I think, uh, 120 additional pages, mm-hmm. 30 or more illustrations. It is the 2016 edition. And don't forget, we have a book also on Zika virus. Zika is going to be in the news. I guarantee it over the next few months. And you need to know what's going on with that. And a doctor is here to tell you all about it. So check out the Zika virus handbook. A doctor tells you all you need to know about the virus. And that is on Amazon. And so is the survival medicine handbook. I just want to start by talking about this article that I read. It said that one in five trauma deaths may be preventable. And I actually agree with these Orlando shootings. I'm sure there were a lot of the victims that wound up bleeding to death. Some of them may have been shot in the head. Some of them may, however, have been shot in the torso or had been shot and had a blood vessel like an artery torn and wound up bleeding out. Yeah, it doesn't, out. doesn't take long to bleed if you hit one of those. That's right. You've heard of the golden hour. The golden hour means that if you don't get help with and, and maybe advanced care within a short period of time, within the first hour, then most of the time you'll have a worsened outcome from what you ordinarily would have if you had gotten somebody to the hospital really quickly. Well, right. with bleeding, that's really the platinum five minutes because it only takes just a few minutes without 
acting to stop bleeding to cause someone to go beyond the point of no return. Of return, exactly. Well, um, it's very rare that an ambulance is going to arrive within those five minutes. I mean, a 911 call alone, if you don't act quickly, <clears throat> could easily be a five-minute phone call between them saying, well, how did this happen? How many people are there? Um, is it still going on? Where are you located? How many people are hurt? There's a lot of questions that the 911 is supposed to ask, which is appropriate, but if you've got somebody laying there on the ground, unfortunately, you probably have to make a choice whether to help them or make a phone call. And, you know, frankly, I think you should help the person first, at least give some direct pressure, maybe get some sort of tourniquet on it, even if it doesn't require a, a really tight tourniquet, just a, a makeshift tourniquet to slow the bleeding down so you can get on the phone would be very helpful. You know, it's, it's a lot of decision-making, but I think the, the person who's thing. bleeding on the ground really is your priority if, if you can get to them. Right. Well, if you can get somebody else to call 911 while you're that's, applying pressure, that, that's the I perfect think, situation. That would be much, that would be much I, better. But I'm talking about being by yourself right. in a room with somebody who's bleeding. You know, it's it's a tough call. It's a tough call. Well, I'll tell you that it probably would be a great idea for people to start carrying things like tourniquets and and gauze and medical kits, something like your awesome first aid bleeding control right. kit. Uh, with them, put it in your vehicle, have it on the wall, maybe if you're a business, next to the fire extinguisher. I think that if you had these things available, you would have a much better chance of actually controlling the bleeding. So the key is to know what to do. Remember, direct pressure will stop most bleeding. Consider having some kind of medical supplies in your home, in your workplace, at your homestead. Anywhere that you think that there may be a risk of either an active shooter event or even, heck, a industrial accident or falling off a ladder, any anything, it's always a good idea to have these things available. Tourniquets, maybe hemostatic agents like C-Locks or Quick Clot, uh, bandages, and pretty much I think that will help you improve your chances of allowing people to survive these kinds of events. Absolutely. And I just want to make it clear that, that the tough decision that I'm talking about as far as trying to help somebody or do 911 is usually what happens to people who are not trained. The appropriate action is to stop the person who is bleeding. That is who you are supposed to help. The 911 comes after that. Otherwise, this person may bleed out, and that's why I discussed all of the questions that the operator is going to need to ask you so they can send the appropriate type of help while you've got someone down on the ground bleeding. So don't pick up the phone if you're alone. You have to take care of the person. I want to be very clear. And again, the hard decision is that internal pull that someone who's not trained may have. But always help the person who's bleeding Absolutely. So as the article says, indeed, some of these trauma deaths may be preventable, especially <clears throat> if there's someone nearby who knows how to stop bleeding. Hey, you know, we're good friends with Charlie Hogwood, the author of the Survival Group Handbook, actually really the Bible for anyone who wants to have a harmonious 
survival group in times of trouble. And he came over with his brand new baby daughter, Tess, for Father's Day. He and his wife, Courtney, and we had a nice time. And he was able to sit down with me for just a few minutes and talk a little bit about his mission. We have a mission. He has a mission. And I think that you'll like some of the stuff he has to say. Here goes. Hey, we're here with our good friend, Charlie Hogwood of PREP, that's PREP. Charlie's going to tell you a little bit about himself. He is a survival expert, a former Army recon. This guy knows what he's talking about, and we are honored to have him and his lovely wife, Courtney, and their baby Tess, and the rest of his family as good friends. Charlie, we got together today without a lot of premeditation here, so I don't have your bio handy. Tell us a little bit about you and what the deal is. (laughs) Well, Joe, my bio. Well, uh, I've got over 15 years in the U.S. Army as a uh, CAV scout recon, and I've got uh, got uh, some of that time was also infantry. I graduated out of the, I say graduated, got out of the (laughs) Army uh, as an E6 staff sergeant, and uh, I've seen a lot of experience. I was in I was in Germany when Chernobyl went up and was actually measuring radiation as it came across uh, Western Europe. And I've got time down at Hurricane Andrew down in Florida uh, during the immediate response after that storm and a number of other hurricanes, Central America, Jungle Survival Qualified, a whole bunch of those. That's my military career. And that's kind of what led me into to prepping and survival is I saw too many people who were ill-prepared and facing disaster and had no clue. And I just found a great interest in setting aside a few things. And as time went along, I found it turned out to be a really, it's a fun hobby. And then I, I found a lot of people I had no idea and just started showing them what to do and developing curriculum and classes and courses and moved into consulting. And now I, I wrote a book, uh, the Survival Group Handbook, which is on uh, Amazon and Kindle. And uh, now we consult with groups all over the country on how to uh, plan, lead, and organize your group or family uh, for anything that uh, causes life's disruptions. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of people that you would be talking to when you do your consulting work. What, what are they mostly concerned about? What, are, what would they like to establish by consulting with you? Most people are regular families or small groups. There's, there are those constitutional groups, the larger militia-type groups, the the, the bigger church groups that are looking for emergency plans and, and procedures, what to do now and just in case. There are all different types of event that people are worried about. Before 2012, there was everything. Uh, afterwards, it turned really with a heavy focus towards economic issues, and that seems to be a big worry for people. And um, there's a lot of cyber attack concerns, a lot of things that will disrupt daily life. And uh, that's really where we are now, mostly economic and worried about the grid going down in some fashion. If the grid goes down and you have a group of people that have to get together, they're going to have to get along. And that, I think, is one of the big ifs with any survival group. Even people that get along now, under the strain of the situation, they may find it very difficult to get along as resources become scarce. How, How would you advise them to keep harmony? Things don't get easier when times get tougher. <laughs> people, people say, "Oh, well, we'll You're all pull together." You're a wise man, Charlie Harwood. <laughs> <laughs> people say, "Well, we'll all pull together when it gets tough." You know, we'll oversee, overlook all of our little differences, and that's not the case. When times get tough, and you got that psychological strain, people will start to 
the little things will start to bug you. Things that you overlooked before will really start to be a problem uh, with people now. And uh, that's, that's where we really have to focus on relationships. We talk about survival relationships. I call it the survival marriage. If you don't want to grow old and let that other person raise your children, uh, that might not be the person you want in your survival group. If you don't trust them, that may not be the person you want in your survival group until you, they can prove otherwise. So you have to first and foremost build relationships. You can live without supplies. You can live you know, by the seat of your pants if you've got good people to work with. What we try to do is teach you to not find yourself in that position. Build good relationships. Work with the people that you know and trust first, and then ease them into a life of uh, preparedness, and then go from there. It's a lot easier than trying to find strangers and convince them of what you're trying to prepare for. You know, Charlie, with the Orlando shootings, it just I find it hard to believe that we can we would actually be able to get together. I see this country being torn apart at times when they should be getting together, such as this horrific shooting of over 100 people. And so I'm really concerned about this. I'm really concerned about the fact that we're being told the economy's good, but it doesn't sound that good to me. I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody is doing particularly well. I'm looking at the stock market. It doesn't look like it's doing particularly well. I see us as being in a slow downward spiral. What is your take on that? The, uh, the market is, is running certainly contradictory to everything else that's going on. I think one of the real indicators as to where an economy is going are the long-range uh, orders that corporations put in, the shipping plans, how much space is on cargo ships and trains, how far out are people ordering, and what they're really looking at from a distance. And that's really where the, the people that manage the money at the higher levels, that's what they're looking at. They're looking at how full are ships coming back and forth. Are they going overseas empty, coming back full? Are they coming over half full? That's the kind of things that, that, that are drivers or indicators for, the, for uh, an economy. And every, everything points to things are slowing down again. They've been slowing down. The guy on the street that I talk to, all day long, they're, they're saying, I don't know who it's getting better for. You see little spurts of construction and, and, and things like that going on in the economy, but it just doesn't seem to really have legs. And I, I don't see that it's going to get any better. It's going, to, it's going to get worse over time. And I think these next elections are really going to prove out, uh, either no matter who gets in office. There's a lot of unhappy people. I think we've seen that because of the insurgent uh, type of candidate that's out there now. People are just furious with the, the entire system. And I'm seeing such an amazing disconnect between these Orlando shootings and terror. It's now Orlando shootings and gun control. As a matter of fact, the New York Daily News had a U.S. congressman, uh, Democrat, uh, I forget his first name, his last name is Moulton, uh, in his Marine uniform, he was in Afghanistan holding his M4 and saying that this gun should never be in civilian hands. Well, what he had in his hands, being in the military at the time, was not an AR-15, but it was an M4. And indeed, the M4, you cannot get that because it's an automatic weapon. I guess what he meant is the AR-15. Tell us about the AR-15. Is it getting a bad rap? Well, the AR-15 is getting a bad rap. It's... People call it an assault rifle, and you'll hear both sides with their definitions. At the end of the day, there are all kinds of rifles that are semi-automatic rifles. And, you know, there are some people that use them for hunting. Not a whole lot of people, I would say. It is the most common uh, weapon that's out for sale in recent years, and it's just getting to be more more popular. But 
you know, I think a lot of this came from desensitizing each other with Call of Duty and all the fun that comes with shooting and target shooting. And, and uh, it's, a, it's just a friendly, user-friendly type of weapon that uh, at the end of the day, it, it's fun. It's not terribly expensive. It's also not automatic. It's not. It's, exactly. That's, it's just yeah. a semi-automatic, a semi-automatic weapon. If you put a 10-22 Ruger, and I don't want to get too much into the gun talk and drive people off the <laughs> cliff, but if you look at a semi-automatic 10-22, a 22 caliber, you know, plinking gun, uh, with an old wooden stock, you'd say, oh, that's not a big deal. But you put a black stock on it, mm-hmm. and you put some <laughs> kind of a sight on it or a fire su- a suppressor on the end to hold the sparks down. Uh, you know, then people all of a sudden think it's an assault weapon. That's not yes. the case. Okay, people. Semi-automatic, bang. Automatic, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> That's all right. right. <laughs> On fully automatic, <laughs> a, a, an M16, for example, which is, is the, the mother of the AR-15, the M16 would fire 30 rounds in 2.2 seconds. I've done it. I was in the Army for a lot of years and had fully automatic weapons. They took those away and came back to what's called a three-round burst. You know, you squeeze the button, three rounds come out. You can't even get that as a civilian. You have to go through all kinds of background checks and pay ridiculous tax fees just to be able to get those kind of uh, federal firearms licenses. So, no, they're not all over the streets. So just because a gun is black and has a magazine that holds multiple rounds, that doesn't make it a bad weapon. And so that's, I think, what everybody's biggest concern is. They don't even talk about the size of the bullet. They just talk about how many bullets are there. But it's actually even more basic than that. The court, appeals court in California ruled that the average citizen may not have a right to have a concealed weapon at all, any kind of concealed firearm at all. We're reaching sort of critical mass with this, and I expect some changes to occur. One of the changes that's being recommended is that people on a suspect suspected terrorist list on mm-hmm. the FBI that they should be forbidden to purchase guns for at least five years. Now, what do you think about that? So you're referring to what I believe is the no-fly, no-buy policy of firearms. If you're, on a, if, you're, if you're not safe enough to fly, you shouldn't have a firearm. You shouldn't be able to buy one. Okay, and on, on the surface, I think that makes perfect sense. The problem that seems to run into is the lack of due process that comes with being on that list. Now, let's look at the shooter from Orlando. This guy was investigated by the FBI for 10 months, interviewed several times, had loose associate of ties with the suicide bomber, had, a, uh, had been background checked by G4S, which is a defense contractor for background to be a security guard, has gone through more background check than most people ever would on any proposed background check legislation. And yet, look what happened. So what is the answer there? How much background check are you going to do? And, and a lot of people end up on that no-fly list, have no idea they're even there, are not even real people. They're just the names are duplicated. And there's no process to say, I would like to pr- protest my placement on this list, and here's why. There's no way to do that. There's nobody to go to. So what do you do then as a law-abiding citizen? And it's a slippery slope. I Very mean, much so. Once you once you start with that, which actually to many people might seem like common se- a perfectly common sense thing to do, then it will become in, How about in the social past. security recipients, which has already happened. They say if you can't manage a checkbook, you shouldn't be able to buy a firearm. If you're getting social security, well, we don't think you should be using social security money to buy a firearm. Where'd you get that money? So it is a very slippery slope. And older veterans, you got veterans that came back and maybe they're suspect because they had a hard time over there. Well, now you're not mentally fit to hold a weapon. How's that going to go over? Who makes those decisions? 
Well, that's a good point. Some psychologists believe that every veteran that has been through a combat situation has some form of post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD, and you can interpret that as saying that no veteran should be able to own firearms. I'll tell you who's going to make the decision, decision that eventually is going to knock out gun ownership in this country, and that is going to be Hillary Clinton. And the decision she's going to make is not going to change the Second Amendment as it is currently worded. What is What she is going to do with the courts, however, is she's going to make it perfectly legal to sue gun manufacturers for gun violence that mm-hmm. occurs using their products. So product liability. So product liability is going to be the back door that's going to eliminate eventually gun ownership in this country. And you're going to see once this is approved that you can actually sue the manufacturer for a, a gun violence, you're going to see judgments in the tobacco industry range. It is going to drive almost all of the manufacturers, if not all of the manufacturers of firearms in this country, right into bankruptcy. Well, do we think that can actually happen? The U.S. is the largest arms exporter on the planet. And those fire, those very same firearms uh, manufacturers are those exporters. So that would that drive out everybody? I mean, are Remington and Colt, are they going to have this problem? Or is it going to be the smaller guys who started up a machine shop and came up with a new, more affordable weapon? Are they just going to make weapons so incredibly expensive that nobody will be able to buy them? So how's that going to work out? Well, the only thing you can do is keep forming a new company (laughs) after every uh, lawsuit that's brought against your company for the use of a gun that resulted in somebody's injury or death. Well, that's what construction contractors do now. (laughs) Every time they do something. Sounds shady. It does sound shady, doesn't it? (laughs) Look, there's always a way around it. I don't think we'll ever get rid of the guns. The genies out of the bottle are too many. There's always going to be that problem. I think That's right. That Eve, you're, you're so right, and I don't think people really get this. You cannot disarm this country. There are 300 million, probably 400 million guns. There are more guns in this country than there are people. That's right. And the bottom line is that you can't disarm the entire country. Right. And that's exactly why we'll never have to worry about martial law on a major scale. Yes. There's just no way to do that. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you, some of your plans are for the future. Well, the plans for us for the future uh, at Prep, at Ready Go Prep, is to essentially, right now we're working on our video show a lot. We've got our second studio up and running at AroundTheCabin.com. We do a show every first and third Wednesdays at 8 p.m. at AroundTheCabin.com, and you can catch it at the uh, at the YouTube channel as well. Uh, we're also working heavily in the consulting side of the business. We used to do a lot of classes of direct education. We have over 40 different courses that we teach. And uh, we've moved from that area more into the arena of consulting where we go out and travel around the country and we help people form their emergency plans. All that stuff that you do not want to do in survival, but you know in the back of your mind that you need to get done, Mm. we do that for you. If you realized how much it would take to actually be truly prepared for a true you-know-what hit the van situation, then you know that you're not going to be able to do it alone and you need somebody that has experience putting together these kinds of plans if you're going to have a chance to make it. And Charlie Hogwood and Ready Go Prep, these guys know what they're doing. What would be the process if somebody wanted to contact you? If you have any interest in contacting us with questions or information that you need, we are at info at readygoprep.com. If you Google Ready Go Prep, you will find us all over the Internet at uh, 
uh, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, you name all the social media, Twitter, we're everywhere on there. And our website is readygoprep.com and uh, our YouTube channel even. So if we got some videos up and we're working on even more of those. And we'd love to get your questions. So if you've got questions you want us to answer live on our show, send it to us at info at readygoprep. We'll put it on our next Around the Cabin show, and we will answer it in classroom style for you personally. And one last thing, how do you get to your video cast? When is it? Our video cast is at aroundthecabin.com every first and third Wednesdays at 8 p.m. live and in their archives. And, and the goal of that show is to put a very humorous, fun, but educational slant to the survival and prepping world. We have fun with it. It's not a boring show. We always have a great comedic, uh, well, we think it's funny. <laughs> uh, we, have, we put a comedic <laughs> angle to it, have a lot of fun, and, but we do answer your questions, and we do share a lot of information. A lot of that information is what we actually sell in our courses, too. So jump in and listen to us, ask questions live in our chat room, and we'll have a lot of fun with you guys. Hey, make it an evening, and you can watch us, the lovely Nurse Amy and some old guy, do their show just before Charlie's show and have two hours or two and a half. How how long is your show now? Our show runs anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half, (laughs) depending on how much fun we're having. All right. Well, we have to run an hour because we don't want to be making you (laughs) late. I'll tell you. We have fun on our show. Charlie and, and Rusty, his partner, have a lot, even a lot more fun <laughs> than, than we do on our show. But I, you're going to be entertained by both. I hope that you'll check out Charlie Hogwood. What is the name of your show? Do you have a name uh, for this, your show? The show is called Survival with Charlie Hogwood. You know, and it's <laughs> okay. because we haven't, you know what, we should come up with a better name. But we've tried to brand everything as Ready Go Prep. So you search out Ready Go Prep, you'll find us everywhere. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. I had a blast, Joe. It's always fun. All right. Thank you. Hey, let's take a very short break. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Joe Alton, and Amy Alton. We should be right back if we survive the commercial. (laughs) In these days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy to read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become in these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse? You need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did And we're back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Hey, you might have heard about the recent attack, really tragic case by a Florida alligator on a two-year-old boy from Nebraska that was at a Disney theme park. And, you know, it struck me that although I've written about bear encounters and shark attacks, I've never written about alligators or crocodiles. And this is a little strange because we live in an area where there are tons of these guys really all over the place. We live on the edge of the Everglades, and so we have alligators. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what you can do to prevent having one of your kids or your dog or even yourself being a victim of one of these things. 
Alligators belong to a family called crocodilians, which also includes crocodiles, caimans, and about 23 total species. These things are solidly built. They reach large sizes. And interestingly enough, their closest relations that are still in existence are birds. Although humans are usually not on these carnivores menu, there are about 300 attacks yearly that lead to injury or death. Attacks by crocodilians occur mostly in Africa and Asia, mostly by Nile River crocodiles, but it's also been reported in North America, South America, and in Australia. Although alligators look clumsy and slow on land, they can actually reach a speed of about 10 miles per hour. That's pretty fast on land, but in the water, they're seriously fast and they're very agile. Makes sense to give them a wide berth whenever you see them. This isn't always easy as their modus operandi is to stalk and ambush with only their eyes, ears, and nostrils above water. That's the way they're built. Attacks occur both in the water and at the water's edge. Now, situational awareness is so important in survival. That'll help you avoid an encounter with an alligator. Now, watch for mounds of vegetation. That could represent a nest. Stay away from murky water. Shallow, swampy areas of vegetation. They hide very nicely in that vegetation. Swimming in alligator territory is very unwise. They're especially attracted to splashing around. If you ever find yourself in the water unexpectedly, get out as quietly and quickly as possible if you think alligators are in the water. Attacks by crocodilians and alligators most often occur at dusk and at night. Nesting mothers are, this is very unusual for reptiles, protective of their young. They have a pretty nasty temper. If you have a flashlight or a headlight at night, that would be very helpful because that will allow you to see the light in their eyes due to the reflection from the headlamp or the flashlight. Now, if you spot a gator on land, you need to stay about 75 feet away, about 25 yards away, even if they don't seem to be doing anything because they can go fast, as I had mentioned. Now, if you're camping in alligator territory, you got to make sure your tent is about six feet above the water line, about 150 feet from the water's edge. If you get that far away and that high up, alligators will very rarely go beyond that level. Store all food securely. Avoid leaving scraps behind. That is just like what you would do for a bear because food indeed will attract them. Always keep a close eye on dogs and children needs near the water's edge. Alligators prefer smaller prey like that that they can easily drag into the water. Now, alligators sometimes hiss when they feel threatened. If they charge, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction in the water. Remember, if they catch you, they're going to try to drag you in. Once you're in, your chances of survival drop very, very much. Now, let's say you somehow find yourself in the jaws of an alligator or a crocodile. If it lets go, it was just a defensive reaction, but if it holds on and tries to get you in the water, you have to fight. The eyes are most vulnerable. You want to gouge at them, just like you might gouge at the eyes of a shark. might be your last chance. After that, any trauma you can inflict to the head might discourage it enough to have it let you go. If everything's failed and you're in the water, there is still a chance. The alligator actually has a flap of tissue in their throat that prevents it from drowning. If you can grab hold of or damage this tissue, which is called the palatal valve, it's in the back of their throat, water will flow down its windpipe and your attacker will likely release you because if it doesn't, it's probably going to drown. Now, if you manage to get out of the water, realize that any bite wound from an alligator is probably already colonized with a huge amount of bacteria. These guys have really dirty mouths. Even a minor bite will become infected if it's not treated with antibiotics. So that's just a short note or two about alligators. If you're ever at Disney World or Florida for a vacation or there, you can find them in Georgia. You can find them all along the deep south. Then you may need to know what to do if you're ever confronted by one.
Hey, you may have heard of the Survival Podcast, one of the most popular and long-running podcasts relating to survival that you'll find on the internet with its host, Jack Spierko, a good friend of ours. Jack has put together what he calls his expert council, a bunch of experts on all sorts of different topics that may relate to survival, and guess who the medical expert is at old Dr. Bones. So I get questions from time to time, and and I got one recently about antibiotics, and I wanted to share that with you today. So here goes. Hey, this is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find more than 800 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the author, co-author, I'll say, with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand spanking new third edition 2016 of the Survival Medicine Handbook just released, and also the timely Zika virus handbook. Consider checking them out at Amazon.com. I'm also the host of American Survival Radio on Genesis Communications and the Survival Medicine Hour podcast on Blog Talk Radio. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Autofab on Zello. He writes, is there an alternative to fish mox as an antibiotic to have in case of an allergy to amoxicillin? You mentioned that fish mox is exactly the same as amoxicillin as a way to keep antibiotics on hand. I have a penicillin allergy, so it's best I don't take amoxicillin, and I have recently been prescribed clindamycin and everything was successful. So this leads to my question, is there an over-the-counter alternative if there is a known possible allergy? Well, Autofab, there are a number of alternatives to fish mox, amoxicillin, that are still available without a prescription in aquarium and avian meds. As a first physician to openly write about the importance of having antibiotics handy for post-disaster settings, I've researched a number of these drugs and found them to meet my very strict criteria. One, they have to have only one ingredient, the antibiotic itself, nothing that makes your scale shiny or your fins or your feathers prettier. Two, they have to be only produced in human dosages, although they're supposedly meant for guppies and parakeets. Why does my guppy need an adult human's dose of amoxicillin? And they have to be identical to the antibiotic in form, color, and identification numbers. For example, Fishmox Forte is a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. Human amoxicillin is a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. In other words, exactly the same. Of course, many people like yourself are allergic to penicillin family drugs, but there are still options in fish and bird antibiotics that you can take. Doxycycline, also known as bird biotic. Clindamycin, which you have taken, also known as fish sin, F-I-S-H hyphen C-I-N. Erythromycin, fish mycin, or metronidazole or flagyl, fish zole, ciprofloxacin, cipro, fish flox, and aquatic azithromycin, also known as a Z-Pack. Now, all of these drugs are acceptable to those allergic to penicillin and would, for autofab and others with penicillin allergies, be useful for your medical storage. For information on how to use these drugs, check out our website at doomandbloom.net or get a copy of the third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Eventually, these may one day be unavailable if the government gets its way, and it often does, so I suggest that you get some sooner than later. I don't think it's ethical for me to sell them, but they are widely available online, or you can find them at fishmoxfishflex.com. This is Joe Halton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. And oh, hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show and on Facebook at Doom and Bloom. Thanks again. 
You know, our friends out there probably know that I wrote the Zika virus handbook. A doctor tells you all you need to know about the pandemic virus. And that book is really, indeed, pretty much all you need to know about the pandemic virus. It's got a lot of information in it. But, of course, as time goes on, there are updates, especially as to what's happening in the U.S. and other territories other than the Brazil and the area that's currently the epicenter of the uh, epidemic. Now, the U.S. indeed has some news. It now has three newborns with Zika-related birth defects, and that's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, part indeed of the U.S., now has 1,700 confirmed cases of Zika, almost 200 of which are in pregnant women. Now, the warm weather U.S. territory is in the midst of an epidemic of the mosquito-borne illness. And you have to realize that these numbers don't take into account that about 80% of these infections are asymptomatic. Absolutely no symptoms. Never knew you even had it. And that's something that suggests that the actual number of cases is, is at least five times higher. That's particularly dangerous in pregnant women. If you don't know that you had the Zika virus, then you don't know that your baby could be affected. I don't know how often they do ultrasounds in Puerto Rico for pregnant women. I know they do them pretty often with pregnant ladies in the United States. But in Puerto Rico, eh, I don't know. Hopefully they do because that's how you catch this kind of problem because the baby's head is just not growing in a normal fashion. The thing to know is that the actual number of cases is always at least about five times higher than whatever the number of cases are that you read. Maybe even more in Puerto Rico where the blood banks there are reporting that more than 1% of all units donated on the island carry evidence of the Zika virus. Now in the continental U.S. and in Hawaii about 750 cases have been identified. All appear however, to be related to travel in the epidemic zone. That's, well, a lot of people are apparently traveling there. There are more than 200 pregnant women within that group. They're being monitored for signs of fetal damage. Of course, some have had babies already, some normal, some have miscarried, and some have indeed Zika-related defects like microcephaly. The CDC actually has yet to find a case that they're confident was locally transmitted. In a sense, that's good because they consider the risks of an epidemic in the United States to be very, very low. The CDC is counting a number of different abnormalities in its study on the effect of the virus, and chief among them is, as I mentioned before, microcephaly, where the baby's skull fails to grow normally, probably as a result of defects in brain development. The brain doesn't grow, and so the skull, I guess, doesn't feel it has to grow either because it's got plenty of room for the small brain. You also see things like calcium deposits where... Normal brain tissue is replaced by calcium, uh, excess food in the brain. You see that, abnormal eye development, a lot of different things. And it's thought that at least 1% to 15% of Zika-infected newborns will come out with some kind of problem in this ballpark. Now, of course, the CDC is trying to become more prepared. They've assembled teams of experts that's going to send to various high-risk states like Florida, where we live, uh, Texas, Louisiana, places like that, especially when they start seeing some of these local cases, they do expect them to exist and to occur, but they're not expecting a lot of them. The teams are also going to, maybe more importantly, assist efforts to control mosquito populations in high-risk areas. And the good news about Zika tests, there is a test for Zika. It's called the uh, reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction test. Whew. 
Surprised I got that one out. It used to be available only in s certain state labs, and now it is going to be widely commercially available at common large labs like uh, LabCorp, Quest Diagnostics, places like that. The Zika virus, along with the more dangerous dengue fever virus, which is also related, it's a, a, a f in the flavivirus family like Zika, is spread by special types of mosquitoes called Aedes mosquitoes. These came from Egypt originally. It's called Aedes aegypti. There is an Asian version called Aedes albopictus. It looks like a tiger, has, almost looks like it has stripes, the Asian tiger mosquito. And these two particular mosquitoes have found a home in the United States, and they are able to spread the virus. They're now known to be in 44 different states. That's pretty amazing because last time they really looked, there were 12, 12 states maybe a decade or so ago. Now they're in 44 states. The same mosquitoes are known to transmit yellow fever, West Nile virus. You've read about that, I'm sure. With regards to the Olympics, the World Health Organization has closed ranks with the International Olympic Committee. It's saying that it considers Zika a very low risk for causing problems in the upcoming Summer Olympics. Interestingly, which is being held in the middle of where all the cases are occurring. Now, previously, it was a little more concerned. It sounded alarms regarding Rio de Janeiro, the host city, which I think has the second highest number of cases. With the game starting uh, in August, you would think that this would be a pretty big concern. Well, for me, it is a concern, and both myself and over 250 other medical professionals have signed a petition recommending cancellation or transfer of the Summer Olympics to another venue. I realize that I'm in a minority. I'm in a minority in a lot of opinions many times, but I have to say there are a lot of countries that are warning against travel to the Zika epidemic zone, and, you know, if you're pregnant or you have a wife or a partner that may consider pregnancy, it might not be a good idea to really be in Brazil during the Olympics. As if Brazil wasn't having enough problems with Zika virus, the acting governor of Rio de Janeiro has declared a state of financial disaster. They call it financial disaster, I guess, state of financial emergency. The governor announced that there will be some exceptional measures to pay mounting costs related to the Summer Olympics. And Brazil's in the midst, uh, If you, I don't know if you know, is it's in the midst of a major economic recession. Now, the governor's office says that the decision was made because of decreased revenues from taxes and oil royalties. He says that, and this is a pretty big statement, the financial crisis in Brazil has caused several difficulties in essential public services. It could cause the total collapse of public security, health care, education, urban mobi mobility, and environmental management. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Total collapse isn't something you see often in statements put out by the authorities, uh, which normally say, well, nothing to see here, move along. The, so this is, I think, a pretty impressive concern here. Rio's situation is so bad that two of its hospitals have been taken over by the government just to pay medical personnel. Some police stations are so strapped for funds, they ask for donations from local residents for things like toilet paper. Public workers, retirees, they've suffered month-long delays in receiving their money. So you got big issues here. And in the midst of all these problems, financial problems, there are major Olympic, there are major Olympic projects 
that are well behind schedule. Big issue. And matter of fact, one of them includes the metro line that actually carries tourists to the venue. So if you don't want to walk through crime-ridden slum areas to get to these events, you got to take this metro line, and the metro line may not be available. So the bottom line is you have to ask yourself this question. Is it worth having a half million tourists from 180 countries travel to the epicenter of a major epidemic just for a sporting event? Well, I'll let you decide that. Hey folks, Nurse Amy here. I want to talk to you a little bit about one of my favorite medicinal herbs. And this information comes from a really great book that I love to thumb through. Just take a look at it if you get a chance. It's actually by National Geographic. It's called The Guide to Medicinal Herbs, The World's Most Effective Healing Plants. And it's got a few authors, but it's really great for pictures. So if you have something you're not sure what it is, you can thumb through this and probably figure out if it's a medicinal herb just by the pictures and the wonderful descriptions of the plants. So uh, cinnamon is something that I use on a daily basis. Uh, you can put it in your coffee. Um, sometimes I just take a spoonful of honey with a little bit of cinnamon on it. Uh, it helps to soothe my throat. I've had a cough for probably two and a half years, but the cinnamon just helps to calm it down. Uh, you have to be careful. Too much cinnamon can make you choke. And I'm sure you people have seen those YouTube videos where the silly folks think, oh, we'll just take a whole couple tablespoons of cinnamon and that doesn't work out so good. So make sure you mix your cinnamon with something. Don't just try to put a mouthful of cinnamon uh, and try to swallow that. It's not going to work. So what do you think about when you have cinnamon in front of me? I know I think about hot cinnamon rolls, um, maybe some cider that you have during Christmas time, that smell, um, an apple pie. And uh, so where does it come from? Uh, it's actually a native t from Sri Lanka, which is a, a small island. And there's a couple of different ones. There's cassia. And there's also Chinese cinnamon, which is a close relative. And that one is cultivated in Vietnam, China, and Indonesia. And both varieties come from the fragrant inner bark. Now, that's really interesting because I have a cinnamon tray. And if you just go scrape it with your fingernails or even just take a leaf and crunch it up, oh my goodness, it smells so amazing. So I think there's a lot of the compound that gives you that fragrant cinnamon smell throughout the entire plant. But what's used is the inner bark, and that's kind of important. What they do is they let it grow for a few years, and then they chop it down. And what happens is these shoots come up, and you get a lot of shoots. And then they let those grow for a couple of years, and then they cut off those branches so that it's a, a newer, fresher uh, branch. And the cinnamon has not been growing. Like, I have a cinnamon tree that's been growing. I think I've had it for three or four years. I do not have the heart to cut it down. That's just not going to happen. Um, I'm not going to try to harvest this cinnamon if I was in a survival situation, maybe. But if, if I want that cinnamon, I could just crush up the leaf um, I can use a knife to just scrape off some of the 
the outer bark and then get to the inner bark without cutting down the tree. That really traumatizes me. I'm probably not going to do that. So there's a couple different varieties. There are uh, different places that it grows, but generally it's tropical or subtropical. Uh, so if you don't live in those areas, uh, southern Texas, um, through California, and, of course, uh, parts of Florida, you may not be able to grow this. But, you know, right place, right plant, you never know. It can grow up to 35 feet tall, which is amazing. And so what are we getting in the grocery store? Everybody says, you know, what, what's the cinnamon that I'm getting? Is, is this the one that I want? And it may not be. <clears throat> you need to read the label. Uh, what they're saying is that cinnamon that's in the grocery store may be mixed with several species and different grades. Cinnamon is, is like a wine. It's graded in its quality. Um, you hear things about honey and also molasses have different grades. And so what we're seeing on the store shelves may not be exactly what you want to get. So check your labels. Uh, make sure that, you know, it says something about purity and one ingredient and is not just having the word cinnamon on it because that could mean a few different things. So what do you want to use this for? The primary issue that cinnamon is being used for today is really pointing towards uh, diabetes. And I think that's really interesting because so many people in this country are battling with type 2 diabetes at this point. And so they're saying that it might especially be important for people with diabetes. And, of course, it's the bark that's got the medicinal property. And this compound might be responsible for the main benefit, which is lowering blood sugar in people with diabetes. Now, I don't want to be absolutely 100%. This will work in every single person. There's been a study that showed that it helped lower blood sugars, not just 29%, and also cholesterol levels, which is another thing that goes kind of hand in hand with type 2 diabetes. Usually those folks have cholesterol issues also, so it might work for both of these. But they also found another study where it didn't have much effect. They say that you need to take at least a teaspoon a day. Now, again, don't just put a teaspoon on a spoon and try to <laughs> choke this down because you're going to cough. Mix it in a tea Mix it in your coffee. Put it in some honey and mix it around. You can even spread this on toast. Mix your cinnamon and honey together or spread your honey and then sprinkle your cinnamon on top. But you're going to need to get a teaspoon a day for the medicinal benefits. And I think that's important. There are also capsules. If you're going to use capsules, they say to use one to six grams of cinnamon a day in divided doses not all at once. Cinnamon's usually well tolerated, although it does have blood thinning properties. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.